0: Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by the journalist, columnist and broadcaster Marianne anne Seacart. Born in London, Marianne won a scholarship to study at Oxford at the age of just 16. After graduating, she started her career in journalism at the FT and was quickly appointed a Lex Columnist. Following a stint at the Washington Post, in 1986, she was recruited to be launch city editor at the fledgling newspaper Today, before going on to join The Economist as a political correspondent. In 1988, she was appointed comment editor at the Times and would spend nearly two decades at the paper, serving in many roles including arts editor, chief political leader writer and assistant editor. She left in 2007 to embark on a portfolio career and has since presented the BBC's flagship news programme, NewsHour, written a weekly column for The Independent and appears regularly on programmes such as Question Time and NewsNight. Today, Marianne is also chair of the think tank The Social Market Foundation, sits on the Ofcom content board and is a director of a number of companies and charities, including the Merchants Trust. Marianne, thanks for joining me.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Um, Did you always want to be a journalist?
1: Pretty much always, yes. I can't remember, probably from the age of about 11 or 12, I wanted to be editor of the Times or a political columnist on the Times. I didn't achieve the first, uh, but I did, very luckily for me, achieve the second. So why why the Times and why instantly editor? That seems frightfully ambitious, even at a young age. I guess I just was pretty ambitious. I was a very staunch feminist for a start. And so was my dad, for which I'm very grateful. So he was always saying, you ought to be the first woman this or the first woman that, you know, first woman editor of the Times. Uh, so that was quite a good way to get started in life, I suppose. And why the Times? Because it was... Always the best paper. It seemed to me. It's what we read at home. It was a paper of record. It was the Thunderer. All these things. It's a
0: pretty good paper now, actually. A pretty
1: good paper now, and I like the fact that it was nonpartisan. I'm a very untribal person, so I would never have wanted to sort of hitch myself to the master of I don't know the Telegraph or the Guardian for that matter. And you went to Oxford age sixteen. Well, I got in at sixteen, but then I thought I'd take a couple of years off so that I could catch up with my. Contemporaries there. So, what did you study at Oxford? I studied uh, PPE. (laughs) I'm afraid to say, but it was the closest I could get to journalism. What I wanted to do was to study what was going on in the world, and no other course really did that. PPE was perfect. And
0: did you have a job lined up when you left your degree? Then how did that work into after you graduated?
1: Well, I I did in the second of my years out. uh, I worked as a real sort of cub reporter on some trade mags. Uh, You know, I'm a real minion, very very junior, forty five pounds a week was uh, quite but, good, that. Well, it wasn't bad at that age, I suppose. Uh, and then the summer before I went up to Oxford, I managed to inveigle myself a job at the Sunday Express. Uh, I'd managed to get myself a probationary NUJ card when I was on the magazines, and it was still a closed shop in those days. Uh, and I wrote to every newspaper editor. I thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. You of know, I wrote to every newspaper editor and said, please, can I have a summer job? I'm sure lots of your journalists are going on holiday. You need a bit of summer cover. Can I come and work for you? And That's very proactive. Night- well, you don't get anywhere without it. <laughs> and 19 out of 20 of them said no. But the they actually 20th, replied
0: to say no. because I mean, Most I of them that,
1: replied, yeah. not all of them, most of them replied. And the 20th, who was John Jr. Uh, said, come in for an interview. I subsequently discovered that he would always interview female <laughs> applicants. Oh, <right. laughs> he was quite a ledge. Um, anyway, so I went in for my interview and he was charming and said, well, look, you know, we we'll would be delighted to have you, but of course it's a closed shop here and uh, we can't apply people who aren't members of the NUJ, National Union of Journalists. Of and I said, well, I am actually. And he said, oh, all right, then we'll go down and talk to our news desk. I then got offered a job as a reporter and was told, you know, we're terribly sorry, but we can only pay you £22. And I thought, well, there's my pay halved. And then a day, £110 a week. I was so excited. So I did that for the summer holidays. So you were doing
0: a job that you loved. It was a first yeah. rung on the ladder, as it were, and you were getting paid a fortune. Yeah,
1: it was fantastic. And I hadn't yet gone to university, so I was the luckiest
0: girl in London. It felt like. And did you have to kind um, of? Would they have kept you on there? Do you think, or did oh, it was no, a moment? I it. It so it was definitely so. a fixed term kind yeah. of thing.
1: And my first byline, my first Fleet Street byline, was uh, about an Alsatian puppy called Dolph who went for a walk in the New Forest with his friend William, who was a golden retriever, got his foot caught in a trap and there began his three-day ordeal of pain and terror. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Did he, did he survive then? He I mean, did. He yeah.
1: survived hop, hopping around. Anyway, so the following summer, I thought, well, I'd rather work on a paper other than the Sunday Express, which is not quite my natural home. So I did the same exercise again. I wrote to all the newspaper editors. And this time, Bill Deeds of the Telegraph said, well, come in and see me. And well, by these then, are some of course, amazing names, aren't they? Well, I know. I was very lucky. But I, by then I had cuttings, you see, because I'd, I'd written for the, for the Express. I'd had these published um, cuttings. And uh, and he interviewed me and he gave me a summer job and really became my mentor. And, you know, by the time he died, he was my oldest friend in both senses of the word almost. Uh, was fantastic. And then he let me go back in all my vacations from Oxford. Um, so by the time I left Oxford, I'd, um, you know, I'd worked for The Telegraph for two years. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> Started off, he put me to start with on what he thought would be the most testing job because it was compiling the TV and radio listings uh, with a member of the Communist Party <laughs> who was the stroppiest employee he had on the Daily Telegraph. Wow. And he thought, well, if Marianne can get on with her, then she's basically an OK human being. <laughs> and I managed to get on
0: with this very difficult woman. What did that uh, job involve? I mean, how do you compile the TV listings back then? Because now it's all
1: automated, isn't I think it, it? Yeah, I think it sort Is of it came in on ticker tapes and the Radio Times. And, you know, we had all these different um, sources that we put it together. Did you have to Uh, watch a lot of television, or did you just kind it? Oh, not at all, no. It was only telling people what was on. (laughs) And then he promoted me to Peterborough, which was the diary column, which was great fun, you know, going to lots of parties and trying to inveigle people to give you interesting quotes. And then finally, he let me write Leaders, which was very odd, because I had a pretty liberal cast of mind, and everyone else was about 50 years older and extremely right-wing. I was going to say, because
0: even now, you're incredibly young at this stage in your career, weren't you? And you're writing Leaders. yeah. Wow!
1: <laughs> so how long I, were know, you th- I couldn't quite believe it either. How uh, long were you there? But well, you
0: clearly made your own look. You know, you were quite tenacious. I mean, twice you're writing to all those editors. How long were you there for?
1: Uh, I was there for two years in all my vacations, and then it came to you know the end of university, and um, and I said to him, "Well, please, can I have a job or any chance for a job?" That'd you
0: be know. a natural first choice, yeah, exactly. it, To kind of go back,
1: yeah. And I and lo- um, th- you know, though my politics weren't the same as the Telegraph's in those days, um, he was such a lovely man, and you know, he'd given me such a brilliant break. But he was quite reluctant. He said, I actually don't think you should come here. What he knew and I didn't was that he thought the Telegraph was going to go bust. It ended up being bought by Conrad Black and sort Mm -hmm. of rescued. But he knew that everything was very precarious. So he suggested I apply for other jobs, though, of course, I could go there as a fallback. So uh, I applied to the BBC and uh, civil service, just out of interest, really, and various other newspapers. But the FT offered me a job. So I had to weigh up in my mind, did I want to be a broadcast journalist, go to the BBC or did I want to join the FT? And I sort of paced up and down for about a week because BBC was traineeship, you know, it was pretty appealing. Uh, and then I suddenly thought, God, if I join the BBC, they might put me on farming today or something like that. And I'm such an extreme owl and my brain doesn't even begin to start working till about 11 in the morning. And, and I knew if I joined the FT, I, w- I would never have to be in the office before 11. So I thought, right. better better going to newspapers instead.
0: Well, farming today, of course, traditionally has never started as early as it does now. It actually used to start a little bit later, didn't it?
1: Well, even the Today programme, I mean, I remember in my BBC interview being asked what I first listened to when I turned on the radio. So I said rather boldly, uh, yesterday in Parliament thinking that's pretty early I've heard that once or twice yeah. and they said whoa you're a late riser <laughs> I thought for a student it was quite impressive to be awake at 20 to 9 yeah. I think the day programme started at 7 then didn't it and it's,
0: it's only for the last decade or so it started at 6 I don't
1: know because I was never awake enough but to but you were never, you're never tempted
0: <laughs> how seriously did you consider it it must have been quite tempting
1: oh I was yeah I was very tempted um, but I don't know I just thought I loved newspapers I wanted to write and I thought I can always do some broadcasting on the side which I did do Um, and have done since. There was something very romantic about newspapers then, less so so now, sadly. So tell us about your time at the FT. Was it enjoyable? Um, Well, uh, they asked me, they they said there there were three routes through which I could enter the paper. It was either to be a labour correspondent, which is basically trade unions or an industrial correspondent, which is like sort of pumps and valves, yeah, yeah, yeah. or finance. So pumps and valves and diehard trade unionists. Yeah, I'm not exactly. sure which one's the most exactly awful. the most yeah. And so I said, but I want to do politics. And they said, well, bad luck, matey, you're too junior, you can't do politics. So I thought, well, I suppose sort of labour or industry is a bit closer to politics than finance. Uh, so I asked for one of those two. So they put me into finance. And uh, I had quite a boring time, I thought at the time, to start with writing reports about companies' interim and final results and pumps and valves companies and that sort of thing. And, uh, And then I became Eurobond correspondent. So I learned all about the bond markets. None of this was very interesting to me at the time. Uh, but has proved useful of later in life. So uh, is, was it
0: you were appointed Eurobonds correspondent, but you then had to learn what they were and how they worked, yeah. even though you were responsible exactly. at the FT for their covering? It's exactly. amazing, isn't it?
1: Which just shows how <laughs> amateurish the whole thing really yeah, is. Really if only is. they knew <laughs> in the city how little we all knew. Exactly. Uh, And, you know, even on the Lex column, I was then appointed uh, a Lex columnist, which was actually really quite interesting. It's the best bit about the the FT, really. It's the only thing I
0: read if I'm pushed for time is you go straight to Lex to see what's Um, happening.
1: And I was always much more interested in comment and analysis, always have been, than than news. So that was great. Um, But even then, I felt like such a rank amateur because every day I'd have to write about a different sector, a different company, a different market, and uh, the people I was talking to were, were all experts in those companies or sectors and markets, and I had to be a generalist. So I always felt a bit behind the curve, but I tried not to let it show. Wouldn't that make you writing better, though,
0: being a generalist? Because sometimes when you read, you know, writing by niche specialist journalists, sometimes it can be a bit alienating, really, because they just assume the reader has a certain level of knowledge, and sometimes I don't.
1: That's true, and I've always actually been very concerned to try to translate specialist knowledge into something accessible into English. Exactly <laughs> yeah. into English, and and that was something I always tried to do on the Lex column, and even more so later, which I'm sure we'll come to.
0: And um, were the things you know, because the Lex column can be quite gossipy. Were the things that you would have loved to have put in at the time, but you know, was vetoed for legal reasons or that kind of thing? I always wonder, you know, what are the people who write the Lex column? What is it they're not printing?
1: Well, I do remember having an incredibly humourless sub. Uh, uh, this was actually when I was doing Eurobonds. Uh, and Eurobonds are actually are deathly boring, really. So I used to try to inject humour into the column. And so I would put this joke in. And my sub Adrian would ring me up and say, Marianne, it's fine, but I'm just not very comfortable about the third sentence in your fourth par. Could you explain it to me? So I'd say, Adrian, it's a joke. <laughs> oh, he'd say, Well, I think we'd better leave it out, don't you? <laughs>
0: Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even think you'd get that nowadays. Would no, you, even no, the fact you wouldn't.
1: That... <laughs> But the FT then was very, very staid. And in fact, if you got a scoop, it was quite likely you would present it to the news editor. It was, it was all on paper in those days. Okay? You had pieces of paper with carbon in between. So you had about six pieces of paper with five pieces of carbon paper in between. So you'd hand the news editor the story and say, um, I've got this great story. You know, Would you like to have a look? It's a scoop. And he'd look at it and say, oh, I don't think I've seen this anywhere else. And put it in his bottom drawer. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Things have changed quite a lot.
0: Quite some time. Yeah.
1: So then the Washington Post uh, came yeah. calling after that. Tell oh, us about that. I was that. really lucky. Um, it's a thing called the Lawrence Stern Fellowship, and it still continues to this day. But I think it was only the third year of it when I did it, uh, in 1984. And it was set up in honour of a senior – he was called the national editor, like home news editor here – Um, journalist called Lawrence Stern, Larry Stern on the Washington Post, who was a real character. Everybody adored him, great charisma and lots of English girlfriends. He was a great Anglophile. And he died terribly young, I think out jogging in his 40s. And so they decided to set up a fellowship in his name, through which they would bring one young British journalist who was already working on a national paper to work on the Washington Post for the summer. And I was lucky enough to get it in 1984 and had a fantastic time there. It was great. It was during the Reagan re-election campaign. I, I was lucky enough to be sent to the Republican convention in in Houston. And at morning conference, Ben Bradley, who was still editor, and Ben Bradley was Jason Robards, you mm-hmm. know, with this fabulous gravelly voice and also huge charisma. And uh, I was sitting there rather meekly um, in, in, in morning conference. And he said, well, Marianne, so uh, what do you make of the of a Republican Party conference? uh and i and i said well it's pretty different from a tory party conference in britain he said oh fantastic write us a piece about that uh so i thought blimey i've never been to one (laughs) i
0: was only 24 or something you've got better things to do Uh,
1: yeah i've never been to two i'd just seen it on the telly occasionally so i thought what am i going to do i've got a day to find out what tory party conference is like from houston but luckily frank johnson was there Robin Day was there, so I sidled up to Robin Day, and he he said afterwards, so "This was the most that it was the worst pickup line he'd ever heard." I sidled up to him and said, "Excuse me, you don't know me from Adam, I'm afraid, but my father read at the bar with you."
0: Opens <laughs> <If> the <it laughs> door. Opens the door. He said, "That ages yeah. me for a start." Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Anyway, so I said, "Please tell me what what party conferences are like," and and, and also Bill there was there Bill Deeds yes, and he could give me it from both a journalist's point of view and a politician's point of view of because he had been a cabinet minister. So I got these great quotes from a Tory cabinet minister and from a TV presenter and from several journalists actually, and managed to um, get a piece together on
0: the subject. So how long were you at the Washington Post for? Was well, it just they, that they give you
1: yeah they give you three months and then they give you well, in those days it was a thousand dollars probably more now and a month off to go travelling. So I I bought a, a, a cheap little Fiat convertible and drove it across the states did a great road trip. Wow, and then yeah. when you came back to the UK You started to work with Eddie Shaw Did you on, the t- on Today? I carried on at the FT for a bit And then I got offered the job of city editor at Today Was that when it first started? It, when it first started Because I launch. can remember
0: that You know, I'm, I'm a couple of years younger than you And yeah. I can actually remember that on breakfast television The press is rolling yeah. and everything And I actually bought it Because it was, it was the first colour newspaper, wasn't it? <laughs> it, <laughs> it was,
1: was. <laughs> It was, And I remember there was... The photos are quite out of register, you probably remember I do because remember Because the printing that. was so bad at the beginning So it was colour, but it was all blurred <laughs>
0: But I, I love the fact that it was a colour newspaper newspaper and there was all these die-hard you know journalists of the old school on the telly saying oh no this won't take off people don't need color do they that's incredible isn't it yeah
1: and and those papers look so gray now don't they with hindsight
0: and what was that like in terms of you know creating something from scratch
1: gosh well i mean it was terrifying because i had to recruit a team seven people i think and as i say, i was only 24 or 25 or something 24 i think and I really didn't know what I was doing. So I, I hired a deputy who was in his 50s and male, uh, who was great, Bill Jameson. who uh, has gone on to greater things. And then I thought, I'm going to, I'm not actually going to use positive discrimination, but if a man and a woman are equally good, I'll choose the woman. So on this basis, I thought I'll start choosing on merit and but, you know then I'll use that rule. On merit, I ended up recruiting six out of six women. So we were, yes, I think that's right. So we were seven women and a man, which in those days was pretty unusual. It's still pretty unusual, actually.
0: And did he think that uh, was the greatest thing that had ever happened to him or the worst thing?
1: Very hard to tell. Yeah. I think having a 24-year-old female boss was not great, though I really did my best to be tactful.
0: At the outset, did he feel a bit threatened then? Do you think that that was it? Because, I mean, it wouldn't bother me at all, as long as uh, you were a good boss and you were fair. Yes. And w- w- it, Was that an issue straight away?
1: No, actually, he was bloody good about it. I mean, he must have felt a bit uncomfortable, but all of us did our best to protect his ego, put it like that. So you lasted about a year at today, is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, we did the launch, which was just terrifyingly exhausting because it was basically a a seven-day-a-week newspaper, but with only the staff of a daily paper. There wasn't an Mm -hmm. extra – there there was nobody extra for the Sunday or hardly anyone, certainly not in my department – Seven days a week, but it was also like an evening paper and a daily paper in one because the technology, the new technology we had, was so unreliable that I had to file my city editor's column by lunchtime and then, of course, I had to rewrite it for the afternoon because so much would have changed. So I basically had to write for an evening paper, a daily paper and a Sunday paper and it was pretty much seven days a week. Never been more exhausted in my life. I was going to say, it must be full on in terms of the hours you must have put in. God, I was so tired. But we we got it together, we kept it together. And then what happened was Eddie Shah sold out to Tiny Rowland uh, within, gosh, something like 10 months. I
0: really didn't want
1: want to work for Tiny Rowland. So you,
0: you already started looking for the things at that point?
1: Then. Well, no, I was just approached, luckily, by Francis Cairncross at The Economist to go and write about politics there, which was what I'd always wanted to do in the first place was to write about politics. But I thought, oh, how can I leave my team in the lurch and they've all worked so hard. And You've got to um, look
0: after number one, unfortunately, in well, situations like that. I
1: know. And also, you know, none of us wanted to work for Tiny Rowland, really. So I assembled them all together and said, look, I'm really sorry to be letting you down, but I'm afraid I've been offered this job and I'm going to take it. And they all said, oh, thank God, that means we can leave too. We, we've only been staying out of loyalty. So I think all but one of them left at the
0: same time. It didn't really improve once he'd taken over, did it? Not much. No. <laughs>
1: no. So how,
0: how long were you The Economist for? Uh,
1: I was there for two years and very happy. Uh, I was the main political correspondent and at last I was writing about the subject I'd always wanted to write about. Still no byline at that point? No the byline. Economist. No, <laughs> yeah. no. But probably no bad thing because I, I probably wasn't very good at it to start with. I mean, I was amazed by how ignorant I was. Despite, I mean, all I'd done really was read the papers, you know. Um, and even at Oxford, I'd actually dropped politics and done philosophy and economics on the basis that my dad advised me, he said, Look, politics you can just read in the bath and you probably will, but philosophy and economics, if you don't study them now, you never will. And actually, in a sense, I'm grateful to that because economics is such a useful subject to know about in, in journalism. And, you know, I've really noticed subsequently you can divide journalists between those who understand economics and those who don't. So I'm very grateful to have carried on doing that. But it meant I really had to start from scratch on politics. So I was grateful to The Economist for giving me that chance. So how did you come to move on from The Economist? Because you were there about two years and then The Times. Yeah, I, I wasn't looking to leave at all. And in fact, I'd had a whole spate of headhunters ringing me, ostensibly to ask me for, did I know of anybody who might be interested in a job editing the Toronto Star or something like that? And I was sort of getting a bit fed up with it because I thought, you're earning tens of thousands of pounds from finding these people, but basically you're just picking our brains for free. You see? Sounds so like for... recruitment
0: consultants are <laughs> yeah. even now, doesn't
1: it? <laughs> exactly. So finally, one day I get this call from a headhunter and say, hello, I'm saying so and so and, so and so from such and such a headhunter. And I must have woken up on the wrong side of the bed that, that morning. And, and, uh, and I said, oh, God. I said, I'm so fed up with you guys ringing me up, picking my brain, not paying me anything. And you go and get a fat fee. And he said, well, actually, I was ringing up to see if you might be interested in a job. (laughs) So it wasn't a great start. No, I can imagine. um, uh, Funny to be approached by a headhunter in journalism. It's quite rare, isn't it? Anyway, there it was. Uh, And they said that the Times was looking for a new editor for its op-ed page. And would I be interested? Well, hell yeah. Of course. As someone once said. And I always wanted to work for the Times
0: I was going to say you yeah. weren 't editor at that point in terms of editing you know editing the actual paper, but yeah. I mean, that 's a good first rung on the ladder did you, exactly. did, did you think then that this was your first rung on the ladder at the times that would inevitably lead to you know being the editor? maybe no, you know then global domination etc cetera, etc cetera, no, you know of
1: course not and nothing is inevitable but absolutely not no i didn't but i thought it was a good first step if that was the thing i wanted to do and besides it would give me the chance to carry on writing about politics with a byline because if of course if you're our ed editor and you want to write a column no one's going to stop you <laughs> you're editing the page And you were at the Times for twenty years. Yeah, nearly nearly nineteen, I think. Yeah.
0: How many different kind of roles and responsibilities did you have then?
1: Well, I did op-ed and always carried on writing at the same time. Um, And who was the who was the editor? That was Charlie Wilson. Then then he asked me to do arts as well arts editor and that was pretty demanding what a doubling I, of the workload so yeah. you carry on comment and art. yeah wow yeah
0: and why did you say yeah. yes at that point if you don't mind me asking did you feel you couldn't say no uh
1: yeah pretty much yeah. and i thought it was an interesting challenge uh i didn't have children yet at that stage yeah i just thought it'd be fun plus i had the most amazing year when every single night of the week i would go to you know the theater or the ballet or the opera or um whatever and you know art gallery for free and I didn't even have to write about it afterwards, because that was what my critics did. <laughs> so that was pretty amazing.
0: It's interesting, though, that you were, you were joyous at not having to write it. Was the part of the journalist writing you thought, I actually do want to do this? I do, I do want to do the, the criticism as well? No, not Oh, really. you, you were glad for them to do it? <laughs> I was
1: glad for them to do it, really.
0: And what else did you do within the times? So, I mean, 20 years is a long okay, time. Okay,
1: uh, then I had my first baby. And um, apparently Simon Jenkins tried to sack me at that stage, I discovered later.
0: What, for the um, finding you guilty of having a not baby?
1: quite sure, probably. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to defame him, so maybe not for that reason. Maybe he thought I was crap, I don't know. Anyway, but David Lipsy, who was given the task of sacking me, he was the deputy, uh, liked me and thought that would be a mistake. So he, he said to me, now, you're, you know, so marvellous you're having a baby. It's brilliant. The last thing you want to do is to carry on doing op-ed with these terrible hours and everything. Wouldn't you love to go back to writing and maybe do a four-day week or something like that, ease off a bit? Uh, so I thought he was being really sympathetic and nice. So I said, oh, yes, that would be marvellous. And he managed to get away without sacking me.
0: <laughs> and, and when so, you returned to do the four-day week, what, yeah, what were you doing then? I was leader writing. I mean, you must have enjoyed that hugely. I mean, there you are, writing the leaders for The Times.
1: Yeah, that was great. Leader writing, but also doing other things, writing features, writing stuff for what became T2, but was then called Life and Times. I think it went through so many iterations, but yes. And I'd write travel pieces and... Yeah, really pretty much what I wanted. It was, it was a lovely time. Can you talk me through the process of writing a leader?
0: Because I've always worried that. Do you kind of just know what the tone would be and what the Times' is, view would be on something and then you kind of just write it from off the top of your head? Or are you given a steer and a kind of framework, corporately, as to what it is? I mean, how does it actually work?
1: Well, you have leader conference every day at which there's the editor and the deputy editor and all the lead writers. Sometimes other people like the foreign editor might be there. So
0: the hive mind of the times. The hive mind of the
1: times, exactly. And you first of all, you have to discuss which subjects you want to cover. And there's quite a long discussion about that. Sometimes there's an obvious one that you have to do, but sometimes it's not obvious. And once you decide what subject you want to cover, there's then often quite a fierce argument about what the leader should say. And at the Times, it's particularly enjoyable and particularly fierce because there are people of all political viewpoints there. Uh, Whereas I suspect at the Telegraph, well, the Telegraph in my day, there was one liberal who was me. Mm. (laughs) Um, With a token uh, liberal. Yeah, exactly. With a small L, I should say. But, um, you know, I suspect at the Telegraph and The Guardian, there's less argument about it. But at the time, there was lots, all very good natured, but a lot of ding-dongs. Until eventually the editor would say, right, OK, I think M.A., that's me, you you should write it. And this is broadly what we ought to say. and then you've got the rest of the day to write it. And sometimes it involves doing quite a lot, lot of research. Sometimes it's just a matter of putting the arguments in the right order.
0: How often did you have to write a leader where you'd argued fiercely in conference, you were defeated, as it were, and mm-hmm. given another line, but you had to make a, the best fist of it, even though you didn't quite agree with what you were writing? Did that often happen?
1: Only occasionally. I mean, generally, he would give the task to the person who believed <laughs> what the leader line was going to be. But I did occasionally have to do it. But it's like being a barrister. You know, you simply have to b- pick up a brief and argue it as well as you can. I wouldn't have written anything that I violently disagreed with. I would have said, look, I really don't feel comfortable with that. But that, that really wasn't common at all. So,
0: can you tell us about the time when you actually approached Rupert Murdoch to buy the paper?
1: In 1990, um, I did the probably rather career endangering thing of approaching Rupert Murdoch to ask if we could do a management buyout of the Times um, because it had become very right wing, uh, no longer independent. The Independent had launched, had taken away a lot of our readers. People no longer believed what they read in the Times because they thought it was biased. Um, So I, with my city background, I went to see John Knott at Lazard and said, look, is there any way of putting together a management buyout? How would we get the investors? And we worked it all out. And eventually I got in touch with Murdoch and said, can I come and see you? And um, I did my pitch and he said, no way. Good (laughs) impression, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, "Um, well, why do you want to do it anyway? And so I, I pretty much said, look, I don't think the Times can succeed against the Independent. Well, it's not independent, which as I say was not exactly career enhancing. And it also another reason probably why I would never have been editor of the Times because I really wasn't his sort of person.
0: 2007 arrives and you move on from the Times. What was the why was the decision to move on after all that time?
1: I don't know. I'd been feeling increasingly jaded. I'd been writing a bi-weekly column for a very long time by then. I'd been covering politics for a long time. Tony Blair was leaving, Gordon Brown was about to become prime minister, and I knew that that would be just ghastly.
0: And did you have a plan in place at that point? Did you have a few things that sprung to mind? I might do a bit of this and a bit of that, and I could do a bit more commentary on the television. What was, what? Were you, I mean, clearly you've made a great success of your portfolio career now, but how, back then, what was your plan?
1: I thought I was going to write a book, which I didn't end up doing, uh, so that wasn't very successful. I thought there would be loads of jobs around, but I left three weeks before the credit crunch and suddenly the economy Mm -hmm. nosedived, so that wasn't very successful either. Uh, But I did want to sit on boards, which I have managed to do, and I did want to do more radio, which I love, uh, which I also managed to do. I thought I'd be able to do some TV, but despite the fact I'd done a lot when I was younger and was always being badgered to do it when I didn't have the time, I discovered that once you're over... Well, in your late 40s now, over 50, they're not so interested, very oddly. And do you think they're not interested in in older people, or do you think they're not
0: particularly uninterested in older women? Do you think there is a problem of sexism, uh, even if it's passive or subconscious?
1: Huge, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think there's a huge problem. I mean, I'm the same person that I was when they were gagging to have me on screen, except for the fact that I know a lot more than I did in my 20s, and yet... So you're, you're no in a better
0: are. position to, to offer higher quality uh, comments, as it were, yeah. and, and uh, insight. Yeah. So, so they, they would say because you're older than you were, literally, to put it brutally, they, that that uh, you, you're not going to go on the telly. I mean, that seems well, dreadfully short-sighted on their point of view. Frankly. They
1: wouldn't admit that because, as Miriam O'Reilly discovered, uh, you can get a lot of compensation out of them if they admit it. But, I mean, I can't imagine why else it would be so hard to get on TV at 53 as a woman. Tell us about your work with the Social Market Foundation. Uh, Yes, it's a think tank which I chair. um, Non-partisan, which I like, as I've said before, because I'm not a tribal sort of person. Um, Small but perfectly formed. I would say it's only eight people, but gosh, they're brainy. And um, we won think tank of the year a few years ago, which was very exciting. And, uh, you know, I like being involved in policy as well as politics. It's always very tempting just to be interested in the ups and downs of politicians, which I do also like. I am interested in and fascinated by their personalities. Yes. But sometimes you have to actually think about the policies, too. And how does it I've always wondered
0: how think tanks actually work, because when I've worked with think tanks, they're often on the treadmill of organising events and doing press release. There seems to be quite a treadmill, as it were. But I mean, when, when, where does the thinking
1: take place? Oh, we put out a lot of research reports. We probably do about, um, oh, about eight research reports a year. So a lot of thinking and research takes place. And then we will obviously organise events to launch those reports. Uh, and sometimes we do events that don't aren't associated with reports. But no, we do a lot of original thinking.
0: And where do you get your joy from from working with them? Is it when a minister actually will take an idea on board? What, what, you know, in terms of the purpose for doing it, what's what's the outcome?
1: Well, the ideal outcome, yes, is that a party takes it takes your policy on board. Uh, but even if not, stirring things up um, is always a good idea. It's. It's quite good at this time in the political cycle that the last two years have been a bit arid because people sort of closed down their thinking in the run-up to a general election. But I think now with a new intake and new Labour leadership contests, now is fertile ground. Final question then. What's next for you? Uh, Well, I'm finding it very interesting being on the content board of Ofcom um, because we basically regulate most of the TV and radio industry, everything apart from bits of the BBC. Uh, so that's completely fascinating, um, both licensing stations, but also regulating their content, you know, if, if, if they breach impartiality rules and that sort of thing. Um, and Do you ever feel your of...
0: poacher and gamekeeper, as it were, given <laughs> that you're on the other side of it?
1: That's exactly what I am, yes. And, <laughs> and most of us on the board have um, TV or at least journalistic experience.
0: That must actually make you a better regulator, frankly, because you know you know what they're going through, as it were.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I find it very interesting. Also, the people who work at Ofcom are so bright. I mean, they've they've got some really very high-caliber people there. So it's quite an intellectual challenge as well.
0: And in terms of your journalism, what are you doing day-to-day on that now? I mean, I, I see you often popping up on the telly and I hear you on the radio. Uh, do you do much in print?
1: I don't do much in print anymore, no. I, I sort of feel I've done 30 years. So you don't miss it? Everyone's so depressed in newspapers these days. Um Yeah, I sort of feel I've done enough, really. I'll I'll write if someone asks me to, but I'm not prepared to sort of go in and pitch for pieces. But radio is what I most enjoy. I'm presenting Start the Week in a few weeks, so that's exciting.
0: I love Start the Week. I love
1: Start the Week as well. It's the best gig on Radio 4, isn't it?
0: Well, you know, I I can never listen to it live, but podcasts have changed my life. I mean, I know we're doing one right now, but, you know, in our time with Melvin Bragg, you you never miss anything, do you? It's incredible.
1: Exactly. It's fantastic. That's revolutionised radio.
0: What what is it you like about Start the Week then? Because it is quite an eclectic programme, isn't it? You never quite know what it's going to be on, and that's one of the reasons I like it.
1: That's what I love. Basically, I've always been a generalist, and I'm curious about so many things in the world and I've never really wanted to specialise so I love programmes like start the week both as a listener and I hope as a presenter I've learnt a huge amount and I just wanted to say thank you ever so much for your time well thank you for having me A Big Things
0: Media Production <laughs> Big